black thing go from left to right, and I thought, I'm going to die out here. No one's ever going to know. I couldn't believe what my eyeballs were showing me. I'll never forget how evil the eyes were. It was horrible. I mean, I've never seen nothing that evil. It ran towards me at a, at a rate that I, I, I can't even explain. Turned and stared at me. And this look of, I just want to kill you. I want to say it was human, but it wasn't. He was, he, was, he was yelling at me to grab a gun, grab a gun. I was like, for what? He said, just grab a gun. And there's footprints all the way to the door of my house. It had went inside my garage all the way to the door. 
I wanted to talk about, um, before we get into some of the different things on TV, uh, I wanted to ask you about your own personal encounter with Sasquatch. And if you would kind of share with the audience uh, what you were out doing and, and walk us into what happened. Well, um, you know, I had several things happen, Wes, when I was young. Things like hearing, you know, like a, screams, like a woman being murdered in the, in the forest. When I was young, because I, I practically lived in the woods when I was a kid with the dirt bikes. and <clears throat> um, I don't think I ever came home. And then later on as a deer hunter, I would hear and smell. I'd hear chest beating on occasion that was not grouse. <clears throat> excuse me. And I would hear or smell terrible smells, you know, and they'd be reported by other people in our hunting party. And they'd be, we'd be a mile apart. Very odd. And you just, you know, this stuff kind of builds up. And I do remember seeing the, uh, the uh, Patterson Gimlin creature on the cover of Boy's Life when I was young. And I could, you know, very quickly look at that with kind of a skeptical eye and went, God, that looks like a real, a real animal. And I remember, you know, that kind of opening up my brain, um, but didn't really think a whole lot about it. In a very busy young life, got married young, had kids, and um, started getting into television. I landed a TV, my first TV series in 1985, um, and that that allowed me to travel pretty much all over the world. And I was on a trip for that show, way up in the uh, Subarctic on a lake called Selwyn Lake, and we had flown up there to film giant lake trout. And I was up there with a uh, uh, a fisheries biologist, um, a good friend of mine. We had a fishing guide. Anyhow, one day um, after a very successful day of filming, we did, had to do a little pee break, and it was kind of the lake was a little bit rough that day, so we went to shore, and. Quickly, we all noticed these tracks that came out of the water and walked on this beautiful sand beach, um, what they call an esker up there in the Arctic, and um, threw pea gravel into the into the um, forest, the stunted black spruce forest. And, you know, of course, we're immediately looking at these tracks. <clears throat> and the ones in the sand, there wasn't a ton of detail. I mean, there were, there, there were discernible toes. But there wasn't like, you know, um, uh, there were no claw marks. We thought for sure these are polar bear tracks or grizzly, possibly even uh, barren ground grizzly tracks. And, you know, there were no claw marks. and They were just way too long. They were in a very weird, perfectly straight line. And we followed the tracks through the pea gravel. I remember um, uh, Rick jumping off a big, tall rock and trying to make that kind of a deep impression. He couldn't even dent it, and he weighed dating 270. And so uh, we followed the tracks, and then they got into these little stunted black spruce trees. And they're about seven foot tall, Wes, and they're, you know, they're, they're spindly, they're flexible. But there was a seven foot tall tree, and there was a track in front of the trunk. And then in a straight line was the next step stride. And, I, and that's when it really hit me. Holy crap, whatever this was stepped over this tree. And, you know, I remember just like the blood rushing to my to my head and thinking, my God, you know, this 
is probably a Bigfoot. And of course, everybody else in the party thought the same thing. And they were just like, we were kind of goofing around, you know, laughing, joking about it. Then we got really serious because we followed the tracks through the, the uh, little stands of trees. And then we could see out in the tundra, these tracks going forever, um, this trackway. And it went in a straight line. And so, of course, I want answers. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking, God, whatever this is, we can catch up with it if we get the float plane up because there's no place for it to hide up there. And um, it's still something I would like to do at some point. Um, and that is to go back and look for tracks. So we went to the float plane pilot, took a long um, boat trip. We call it the butt slap trip because it was rugged water in this little aluminum boat. And we got back and we, we told them about the tracks. And it was just an instant. The uh, camp owner got angry, thought we were trying to hoax him. And he took his clipboard, and I remember he whipped it across the, the tent. And um, me and Rick looked at each other and thought, oh, we better back out of here. You know, <clears throat> he was in no mood for uh, going up and, and looking for something that he thought we were playing a joke on, on him. But I really regret that. And anyhow, I get back home, and I cannot get that out of my head. I remember sending Peter Byrne the uh, film. I had had a video camera, of course, filmed all this stuff, sent him the tape so he could study it. And then he had pulled out, um, I think in eight, it was like in the 1800s, a sighting on that lake. It was really interesting. So maybe long story short, I was on a mission at that point. And that, that seeing those tracks just literally changed the course of my life because at that point I was obsessed with getting answers. And of course I'm in the TV business and I thought, God, would it, would it be really cool to actually get some facts out to people? Cause I had met um, Matt Moneymaker at that point. And of course Matt informed me that, Oh man, sightings are common all over the country. And I was just shocked and informed me on, you know, things that he knew. And it really got me more obsessed at that point and more wanting to get this information out. And that's when Legend Meets Science was born. I, I, we contacted Discovery Channel, put a deal together with Discovery Channel just really fast, and I started producing Legend Meets Science. And uh, many of your listeners may know about that. It's now a book also, um, written by Jeff Meldrum. So from there, it went on, um, and I just kept on you know, making programs about uh, Bigfoot because they were my excuse, Wes, to get out into the field. Um, as you know, it's you know it's expensive to go on expeditions. A lot of gear is needed and allowed me to buy a lot of gear and thermal cameras. And this is a long time ago when they were very expensive. Um, allowed me to do a lot of things. You know, just one thing led to another. That's interesting about the trackway. It just went on for miles and miles. Did, did the float plane operator, did he ever go and look at them? No, no. We were literally afraid to bring it up again with him because he was so angry. I mean, we're talking really angry. He really thought that we were trying to hoax him. That's kind of a common thing in camps, these fishing camps, is to play jokes on each other. And he thought we were playing a joke. You know, we were all in on it, and we were all going to get him. But I regret not going alone with him and, and having him 
try to understand that I wasn't joking. You know, this wasn't a hoax. Because I really felt that if we could have got up, you could have seen those tracks just clear. And there's no place for an animal to hide up there. It's mainly tundra. And, you know, the little stands of trees, but they're very thin. You could see right through them. It's not like the canopy, you know, in Washington State or Minnesota, which, uh, you know, aerial reconnaissance to me seems kind of silly in a lot of ways because you can't see through the canopy. But we could have. And we could have, and I had, of course, you know, all the video gear in the world with me. We could have gotten amazing footage because these tracks looked fairly fresh. How far could an animal get, you know? So, you know, you know, on a plane can go, you know, 130, 140 miles an hour. We could have easily caught up to this. So a lot of regrets there, a lot of regrets. Yeah, no, I understand. And it, that is frustrating because you probably would have caught up with it you know, from a plane. Um, I want to get into the Snellgrove incident and your actual sighting. I thought your sighting was uh, very, very fascinating with, with the two creatures talking. Uh, before we get into that, one of the members on SasquatchChronicles.com, he asked me to ask you about Bob uh, offering Bob Gimlin a million dollars uh, to recount his story or something to that effect. I, I've never heard this story before. Uh, but will you tell us what happened? Was it for a TV show? Mm-hmm. Yes, I was, um, I, I, one, I had gone to Bluff Creek with Bob. It was the first time he had gone back. It was me and a whole bunch of other researchers. It was for one of, one of the anniversaries. I think it was around the year 2001, maybe. But um, and I was filming Mysterious Encounters, and we were in Northern California. Um, I was trying to get an interview with Bob literally kind of hinting every day. And I know at that point, Bob was, you know, he was really seemed regretful about going public and, you know, just having so many people ridicule him and say that he hoaxed this and hoaxed that and on and on. And so he was very reluctant to go on TV. And finally, um, because I had done Legend Made Science, um, I think even John Friedis had asked him and said, guys, you can trust Doug so on. But anyhow, finally, Bob agreed to do it. And I remember the sun was literally setting. We had just, you know, I could see the light was only going to be good for a few more minutes. But I'm like, I, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to start rolling. No no prep, no nothing. We mic'd them up quick. And um, I didn't even wait to balance the camera. Just started rolling because this was like, to me, historical. And interviewed Bob and, you know, and he just told this amazing story, matter of fact, and I asked him a number of questions, told him the story, and I got done, and I said, can you hold on a second? After I got the interview in the camp, I called my executive producer um, at, the, at the station, and I said, can I offer Bob a bunch of money to finally settle this controversy, to see if he'll come forward and say, okay, admit that it was a hoax, and I'd give him X amount of money. And so, and I, we threw some numbers out there and I said, how about we offer him a million dollars? And I said, I said, one, I think you're safe. He isn't going to take it because there's no way this guy is lying. Um, I've spent days with him. He's just, uh, just amazing. You know, I don't think I've ever met a more honest person than Bob Gamlin. And I said, so I don't think you have any chance, but in the slight chance that he takes it, then he'll, you know, we'll have an exclusive show on how this was done. And that'll be historical. 
And he goes, okay. And so I turned, literally got off the phone and offered Bob the money. And Bob didn't even think about it. He goes, Doug, I'd love to take your money, but let me tell you again, here's what happened. And he just went off into the story again. I mean, there wasn't even a split second less um, of thinking or pondering or anything. It was just instant. So pretty amazing. Yeah, that is an amazing story. I've never heard that before. And I, I mean, I get where Bob's coming from. It, it gets old after a while. You know, the the big four world can beat up on you. And, and, uh, but for him to turn down a million dollars, uh, that's, that says a lot right there. So that's an well, amazing to story. Turn it, to turn it down within two seconds, he didn't even hesitate. I don't think I've ever seen somebody pick up on a conversation so quick. He said, Doug, I'd love to take your money, but here's, let me just tell you again what happened. And he just went off into the story. It's like, okay. Yeah. There was no pondering. So anyhow, there you go. I uh, think uh, the Patterson footage is, you know, obviously 100% real. And uh, I've spent hundreds and hundreds of hours analyzing it and, and um, doing forensic stuff to it. And other people have, have taken over and are doing amazing work with it. And it's the more you study it, the more you know it's a real animal, period. Yeah, and that's, that is an amazing story because Bob's not a wealthy man. I know that for a fact. Uh, and for him to to turn it down, you know, a million dollars would change anyone's life. Uh, and, oh, sure. And that's uh, wow, that's amazing. I appreciate you sharing that uh, sure. that story. If you would, I really want to get into the uh, the Snellgrove Lake cabin incident and and find out why you think that the creatures are there. Um, but your first sighting was actually at that cabin, and you weren't even looking for Sasquatch. Um, if you would, would you mind telling the audience about that encounter? I was fascinated by it. I know you don't think it's that sure. big of a deal, but I thought it was awesome, an awesome encounter. Well, it's a, you know, it was, it was quick. And, and first off, I've seen these creatures on three, I, I call them casual sightings because there was no interaction. I wasn't that close. One was in broad daylight. Actually two of them were in broad daylight. And, um, one was that night in the headlights of my car but the creature was standing at the side of the road and, and it was apparently, it looked like it was drying off and then, you know, I had a witness with me. Um, pretty amazing. But anyhow, we were up at Snell and I had been going to Snell Grove Lake for many years. I mean, since the nineties. And I went up there first to film a story on this amazing cabin in the middle of nowhere that was solar powered, had a hot shower, Solar, you know, a solar-powered shower, had running water from the lake. I mean, it had all the modern conveniences, except a toilet in the cabin. It had everything. And so it was kind of a big thing in the 90s. You know, gee, here's this getaway you can go to, get flown in, dropped off. I went up there to do a story, which I did for television. And then I'm like, I talked to the guy, I'm like, I want to come back here. You know, and I started going up there because it was just my favorite place to go. Um, for many reasons. One, I mean, how often can you go to a place where you can literally hear your own heartbeat? So this was just another trip. And this was a trip that I had brought, um, decided I'd brought my sons. I had brought friends many times, gone up there alone before. But finally decided, hey, let's, you know, bring our daughters up. And Joe and Vladimir, a good friend of mine, um, um, we all had daughters about the same age, and they were all friends. They all knew each other, too. So we thought, yeah, let's all go on this 
thing to bring them up there. And of course, the moms are all worried because there's no there's no phone service up there. Uh, and so we go up there and we're having a great old time, you know, fishing. Fish are biting. The weather's been good. Um, and my daughter's in my boat. And Joe's daughter's in his boat. And Vladimir's daughter's in his boat. These are little aluminum craft boats with, you know, like five, three horse, two horse motors on them. Um, and um, we were in a in a lake that was hidden, and I called it Hidden Lake because you literally cannot see the entrance of this little stream. It's around a little bog, and so you can't see it, can't find it. You go in there, and there's just massive walleyes. And um, we were on our way out after a long day of fishing. And my daughter started making monkey sounds, which she had done also on the on the lake. She said it helped her catch walleyes. It was very odd, and I said, whatever. Um, she made these little chimp sounds. And so we were pulling out of the stream, and we're catching fish even in the stream, you know, small walleyes. And um, as we're pulling, she's fishing and pulling up these little, you know, 10-inch fish. And we get to the edge of where the stream empties into the main lake. And all of a sudden, there's a huge wood knock. Bam! On the side of a tree. Of course, right away, I'm like telling everybody to cut their engine. So everybody cut their engine. And I told them, I don't think anybody even heard it. Because they were kind of way back there. and The motors were loud. And this thing was right next to me and her. Um, So anyhow... I just had never thought about, you know, this could be a possible Bigfoot place. So it could be a Bigfoot or Bigfoots around this lake because I've been going up there so many times. Never had anything weird happen except a couple of times we'd either heard something. Uh, one time we heard singing. Um, I was up there with my son and, and Joe. And we heard this beautiful operatic kind of singing that sounded like a, just a regular woman singing from the edge of the, the lake somewhere, the the opera, warming up, like she was warming up her voice. And it was really bizarre because it went on so long. And I remember my son, my young son, how one, how that changed his life because it was a mystery even to him. He said, Dad, I know why you come up here all the time. And I said, yeah, it's a lot of mysteries. And it's just, just such a beautiful place. I said, you don't even know you could be back a million years ago and you wouldn't even know unless you looked at your own watch what what century it was or when it was because it's all just this virgin, beautiful forest. Anyhow, um, so we get back. Uh, we wait till um, like two, and two in the morning, one in the morning to do a wood knock. Never done a wood knock up there before. And we do a wood knock, Wes, and it was instant. The response the, the creepy part, it was only feet away from us once again. And everybody's jaw, I just remember everybody's face turned white. And everybody's jaw kind of dipped and dropped. Um, there were certainly skeptics in the, you know, in the group. Uh, Joe had never seen anything until he was always open-minded but skeptical. Vladimir was completely skeptical. And boy, that changed instantly. So Woodknock was loud and just feet. And so we had a rock exchange. We tossed little rocks out into the, where the wood knock was because it wouldn't answer any more wood knocks. So I said, hey, let's just toss a couple of pebbles, you know, 
near where the Woodnock came from, underhandedly. And lo and behold, we had a rock exchange. Rocks came back, tossed gently, landed by all of our feet. And this went on for maybe an hour, two hours, this rock exchange. And so, because you got to remember, Wes, when I had my sighting, it was the next day during the, during the afternoon. And I'll get to that. But so nothing happened. There was no screaming that night. No wood knocks, just this rock exchange, except one big rock landed in the lake and clunk, clunk, clunk down the, down the boulders, maybe 15 feet from us. But then once again, it wasn't aggressive either. And so we go to bed very, very late. Um, the kids are all asleep. Um, uh, and I say, hey, I'm going to set up a bed. You guys can go on off the bed. I had a candle on the table. The cabin was dark except for this little candle, little key light. I'm reading a field in the stream, hoping I'd get tired. You know, I'd feel, get a yawn going. And uh, I finally did. I started getting a little tired. My eyes were tired. And I went to the, I went to the window. There's a window that um, faces the forest. And I went to the window, and there's a little solar-powered light above the sink, in which pumps water from the lake. And I flicked that light on, and then all hell broke loose. And the cabin at that point started being pounded, shook. I could hear. I mean, there was just massive amounts of screaming going on. It just caught me off guard. I mean, I was literally didn't. I didn't even know where to turn. I didn't know where this was going to end. I could hear stuff up on the roof. I could hear running on the roof, which was really odd. Um, it didn't sound like a big, heavy creature. I could hear brush getting tossed up on the roof. Rocks, small rocks, big rocks. Um, it was just a huge amount of commotion. And I look up, and of course, the, the, the skylight, there's a skylight up there, and it's wide open that we used to let the hot air out. And... Um, I'm like, oh, do I shut the skylight? You know, and where's the pole? I remember a pole. I'm panicking. I grab this long pole and I shove it in the hook and I'm trying to get it turned and I start turning it the wrong way and all this commotion's going on. And then the cabin started rocking while I'm trying to get the skylight. And I just, in my mind, pictured some creature jumping down that skylight or falling through that skylight. I mean, it's, you talk about a bad horror movie. So... Anyhow, the cabin is just in full commotion, and I'm like, where is everybody? Nobody's waking up at this point because this onslaught continued. I mean, the screams were thundering loud, and it sounded like there were two creatures fighting. It's the best way I can describe it. Like they were arguing, screaming at each other almost, which was so odd, or screaming at something else. I didn't get to, for some reason, I didn't get the sense they were screaming at me. So all of a sudden, the cabin started rocking, like being lifted from the blocks it's on. You can remember, this is not a log cabin. It's a cabin built on a pretty much plywood um, with uh, steel siding. But it's being lifted from the blocks, from the foundation, and shook and rocked. And I look at the, the floorboards, and I can see the floorboards flexing. And I'm like, oh, my God. I run into Vladimir's um, bunk bedroom there. And he's, you know, sound asleep, and I'm beating on his back, Wes, as hard as I can. I mean, I feel like I'm hurting him. And he's hitting him and hitting him, and I'm, he's not waking up. And then I 
change directions. I'm like, oh, God, Joe will wake up. I run into Joe's um, bunk, bunk room, and I start beating on Joe's back and um, shaking him and waking him. Nothing. And then it quit. And by then, it was too late. I never even got to wake those guys up to even tell them what had just happened, which doesn't make any sense to me to this day. It never did. Um, except they probably were extremely worn out, I guess. So the only logical explanation for all the fresh air and being up late. These guys are, you know, guys that go to bed early and get up early. And, you know, we kept them up quite late. So anyhow, um, the next day we were burning our uh, trash by the, uh, our paper trash in the fire. Cause you have to either, you know, you have to get rid of your perishables. You have to pack out the recyclables and you have to burn your, uh, you know, garbage, basically the, the paper burnables. And, um, so we're burning the trash, but we had just come back, you know, we had dinner every night and everybody was always strictly instructed to never throw your fish guts in the lake because that's where we drink out of, but to always put the fish guts on this big rock on the other side of this little bay about, you know, I don't know. I've never measured it, but I'm guessing it's, you know, a hundred yards away, maybe less. And there'd always be a seagull or two that would come by and, you know, resident seagull that would come by and grab the guts and, and swallow them whole and whatever. It's pretty amazing to me to see these seagulls eat these entrails. But we're burning the trash and we had, you know, we'd had supper. We put the, the fish entrails over there. Um, no seagulls had shown up yet. And we hear chatter like I'd heard the night before. Kind of a, they sounded just like two chimpanzees. And they were like fighting, arguing. And they were going back and forth. And obviously it was two different kind of tones or voices. And we're like, I look at Joe and I'm like, my God, there's sounds like chimpanzees over there. It sounds similar to what I heard last night. We look and we're staring, just staring on the other side of that shore. Here we see two, both of us see it. We see two black upright figures walking and actually heading north. And um, right along the shore, but just in the tree line just enough where we could see there were two upright figures there and they were, they were very black or brown or very dark colored, but we never get to see any features. We never get to see hands or faces or anything. So that was my first sighting and that was pretty exciting. Um, it also was Joe's, but it wasn't, I could hardly even consider it a sighting because I didn't see any detail. Seeing the two figures chattering back and forth. I've actually talked to a lot of hunters who have either seen them or not seen them, and they'll describe it as, um, yeah, I've had it described so many different ways, like two chimpanzees chattering back and forth. Um, I had one hunter who said it reminded him of um, like a deaf Russian people talking. Uh, he couldn't, it was some weird chatter, and it was obviously some sort of conversation going on, <clears throat> but he just couldn't place what it was. And that that's interesting when you see the two figures and you hear them having some sort of conversation back and forth. Like I've had Ron Morehead on uh, several times, and I'll probably have him on here in the fu- near future. Uh, and he's talked about that, almost like they're having some sort of conversation back and forth. Well, actually, I would say these weren't. They were yelling at something. They were either both yelling at a third party or possibly even us, or they were yelling at um, each other. But they were definitely in a scolding tone. You know, it did not sound friendly. Um, 
and it was loud and very distinct, but very, once again, I have to say, it's the only thing I can relate to is chimp, chimp-like chatter. Never heard anything that sounded like words or anything, but man, I tell you, I certainly heard stuff that sounded like anger or um, um, just yelling at each other, like a couple fighting. It's the best way I can describe it. So that was pretty amazing. And of course, at that point, I had produced, you know, numerous shows on the topic, gone on tons of expeditions, looking for them with every kind of photographic gadget you could ever think of. Um, plants, balloons, I mean, go on and on. We had everything. And here I am, burning garbage, talking with my friend about the day's fishing and about the, the previous experience of the night. And at least there it is right there. That's usually and, the way um, it happens, isn't it? Yeah. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. I wanted to ask you, what did you think mm-hmm. what do you think actually set these things off the night before when all hell broke loose by turning on a light? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't really get into a lot of detail. Well, one, I just think about my myself because I've got, you know, very light colored hair, I had blonde hair at one time and then turned white. And so it glows. Everybody always kids me because my hair glows. All I could see in a crowd is your hair glows. Um, so I'm just wondering if they weren't out there, you know, maybe doing their, their reconnaissance or spine through the windows. We're just close by the cabin sneaking around. And then all of a sudden I flick this light on. And if they were close, which they obviously were because, you know, the attack of the cabin happened instantly. Um, I think I just scared the heck out of them. I really do. As you describe it, it, it reminds me of the almost like the Ape Canyon story with the miners and what the miners must have been going through. You know, those guys were just popping off shots through the wall uh, as their cow. I realize it's a different type of situation, but you well, still. I could imagine. Okay, but let's go back. What if? What if this would have been a hundred years ago or fifty years ago, and just complete ignorance about these things, and we're all armed. And we were all up. God, I wonder if we wouldn't have started shooting through the walls. Because I thought I was going to die that night. I really was convinced there's no way I'm getting out of this one. You know, I'm finally going to meet my maker. Because this sounded violent and powerful. And any moment, they're going to come bursting through that little thin door. And I'm dead. And they're going to kill my, my, my child and my friends. And, you know, this is not good. But yeah, I could imagine that if we would have all been armed and taken us back 50 years, 100 years, we might have started shooting through the walls too to protect ourselves. Yeah, so, I th- think it and might. I actually had even reenacted that that uh, Abe Canyon for Mysterious Encounters. So I was very familiar with the story. But here I was living it, real life. And um, boy, I'll tell you that <laughs> that adds a lot of, a lot of credence to that story. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, one before I want to go into the Snellgrove incident, I know you've been looking into this for 27 years. And, you know, my opinion's changed a lot over the very short amount of years I've been doing this. When I very first, uh, you know, I had kind of a nasty encounter, and uh, my opinion of them was they're godless killing machines and kill them all and let God figure it out. And my opinion of that's changed a lot. And it's mainly from talking to witnesses. You kind of get a sense of, uh, okay, well, maybe they're not all godless killing machines. Maybe kill them all and let God sort it out was emotions talking at the time. 
but how has your opinion changed from when you very first started looking into this and you've had these encounters and you've been out to Snellgrove Lake and you've, you know, I know you've looked into this more than probably most people. How has your opinion changed and, and what have you learned over the 27 years? Well, I think I started out thinking they were extremely docile, extremely, you know, that they absolutely operated only on fear and would retreat in almost every case. They might throw a rock at you, but they're going to retreat. You know, and we had had that happen numerous times, but everything always ended without incident. You know, like a gorilla will bang the side of a zoo window and then run. You know, I figured absolutely that would 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 be the case. But things like Snellgrove, where they were attacked the cabin for such a length and knew I was in there, they did not retreat. Um, I don't necessarily, they didn't come bursting through the door either, which would have been, you know, like a toothpick to them. I wouldn't even have slowed them down. But I, I, I kind of think that we're dealing with a more of a variety of, either creatures, situations. I think that they have a hair-trigger temper. I think they're far more powerful than I ever dreamed of because that cabin, I don't know what it weighs, but it was being lifted off its block foundation, which is only, you know, it's held up by two corners on, suspended on blocks, but they were lifting it. You know, and I'm 100% on that. I'm not, maybe they were lifting it. They were lifting it. The whole cabin was being lifted and rocked. And um, and so I'm thinking, boy, they're kind of willing to really go to the the uh, the 10th degree to scare somebody. But then again, I did walk away, and I've been up there, you know, there were numerous times since, and we've had encounters, but in every case, I walked away. But I also think that they're very capable. I think they're mediators. And they're very capable of killing somebody, either out of fear. Um, let's let's just compare it to black bears. There are, my God, just Minnesota alone, there's 38,000 black bears. They, 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 there's that many bears here, and they're tolerated in most cases because they operate on fear. They stay away from people. They see people and they bolt. You know, they just leave people alone. And I think we're kind of dealing with a bear mentality. I think most of them operate in fear. But every once in a while, Wes, there is a black bear attack, and there is somebody killed by a black bear. Um, and I've always keep that in the back of my mind. And for years, I've done black bear research. Um, been very in close proximity to mothers with cubs. I've actually had the privilege of having a mother trust me with her cubs, and thinking, "Oh my God, I hope something doesn't happen, and this mother doesn't go back and take me out." You know, because you just don't know they're wild animals. So there's going to be exceptions. So I always wonder if, you know, people that um, haven't been taken, children maybe have been taken and, you know, taken out of curiosity and maybe died of exposure. Uh, maybe they weren't killed by these creatures. Maybe they were just taken. Maybe they were um, accidentally injured. Um, maybe people have been taken and accidentally injured. You know, because you can imagine something that powerful jerking you around probably wouldn't be too good, and you could die of fear and exposure also. So you, you, you look at the the, uh, the Osman story where he was kidnapped, and there were, there were things in that story that I believe, like he described this goose walk. Well, I'm 
felt that, you know, I was one of the people that saw that first in the patty film. You know, this just the legs splaying out like a like a goose, like a duck walk. He describes that. There's no way he could have described that without having some kind of very, very intimate encounter with these things. You know, could he have been killed? Would he have been killed? Possibly, had he not gotten away. So who knows? So I'm still kind of on the fence, but I have a lot more fear now. In fact, I have not gone to Snell since our last incident. And I keep asking myself, if I'm not gone, because I'm afraid to. In other words, why did I go there so many times? And now I haven't gone. God, it's, it's been, you know, numbers of years now. And I'm just kind of trying to get over. I'm thinking that maybe it is a fear factor. That because it does take some, because I know I'll mess, you know, I'll do wood knocking. I'll do things if I go up there and can't resist. And then you think, God, what if they, you know, what if they kind of recognize who we are? You know, and some of the incidents have happened already. Um, and they come gunning for me. So anyhow, that's kind of where I'm at, Wes. I guess it hasn't changed a ton, except I think I have more fear now, more fear, more respect. And uh, there's certain dots I'm connecting and thinking, yeah, there could be certain ones that could easily and would easily kill a human, just like a black bear, rare, but um, still possible. No, I understand. I wanted to ask you about this cabin at the Snellgrove Lake. Uh, why do you think that they're focused on this cabin? Well, um, okay, I've got, I've got I've got opinions, and they're only opinions. But one, I have been going out there for years, and nothing ever happened. There was never any banging on the side of the cabin or having any rocks thrown at anybody. Although there was, you know, um, a couple of fishermen that I was with um, that had a big stick hurled over the forest and land in the water by them. Um, heard the singing, you know, I mean, I never had any attacks. My God, I've, I've slept out on the dock or right at the, on the boardwalk right next to the dock before you get to the dock. You know, never thought anything of it. Um, the worst thing that happened to me is I saw, you know, a mouse climb in my sleeping bag. That's, you know, and he just kept doing it all night and bothered me one bit. But you get into a... a, a situation where people um, are instructed to throw their perishables at the end of these four-day trips into the backwoods. And once again, you know, when this operator told us this is why, how you're going to do things, he wasn't uh, joking, you could tell. I mean, these guys, they mean business. So when he says don't throw your fish guts in the lake, he better not find any fish guts in the lake. He better not find perishables than burned in the garbage. He better not, you know, or anywhere near the cabin, on and on and on. And so people did this pattern. They'd come up there and they'd put the perishables out. And so it could have been a possible additional food source. But there's a huge amount of food around that cabin. It's rich in grouse, spruce grouse that are, you know, very, very uh, easy to catch barehanded up there. Um, we used to go bow hunting them and so we'd walk up three feet from them and use a flu-flu bow and you know, arrow and just knock them off their feet. So there's a lot of grouse up there, huge blueberry crop, but it doesn't happen until August. Well, I never started going until August. In fact, that was my first August trip west was when we brought our girls up. I used to always go in June. June was like my month up there because there were no bugs, there were no mosquitoes, there were no black flies, and 
a friend of mine who I used to take up there took my, started bringing his friends up there and took my month. So I couldn't go in June anymore. And then the rest of the months were booked by regulars. And so I had to start going in August. And so August was my month. And so I started then going up in August. And that's when the blueberries are ripe. And that's when I started having these Sasquatch encounters. Okay. So that could have something to do with it. But I think, you know, you think about a cabin in the middle of nowhere, you know, you have 500 square miles of wilderness and it's the only shiny man-made thing up there. So I don't really necessarily know why the cabin was attacked when no one was in it. That I do not know. That's an interesting thought process, you know, to figure out why was the cabin destroyed inside in the contents of the shed, including a giant fuel tank that was flipped upside down that no humans could lift. No group of humans could have lifted that and flipped it. If you would kind of describe that, I, I, I would imagine most of the audience has seen that Monster Quest episode uh, where the cabin owner was talking about this cabin being attacked. And I remember when I watched that episode and seeing the damage, because he had actually filmed it. I don't know if it was for insurance or what, but he had actually filmed the damage on the inside. <clears throat> and, you know, my amateur hunter looking at it, I'm thinking, that's no bear. No bear went in there and caused that much damage. Um, but what, for the audience, would you describe yeah. what happened sure. to that guy's cabin? Yeah, well, I can tell you first even how I found out about it, because he didn't tell anybody about that. Why would he didn't want it advertised that the cabin was trashed. You know, that would hurt tourism, right? Um, it's not going to tell somebody some creature broke into his cabin and trashed it. And so I didn't know about it. Because when I got up there with uh, my daughter and Joe and well, you know, that was probably, I think that was the first time that anybody had been in there since the cabin was attacked. And I can tell you, I can attest to it. I knew every knot in the wood, nothing was replaced, meaning there were no scratches in the cabin, no bite marks, no claw marks. I would have noticed it, and I would have said something to Chuck. Oh, I see a bear broke you. Everything was just normal. We get up there, everything's just totally normal. The cabinets are all put back. Even though they were ripped off the wall, they were put back because there were no marks on them. It was just torn with hands. So anyhow, and they didn't even, this wouldn't have never even come up had I had not told Chuck about one, the nail board I found, I told him that's dangerous to have that back there was leaning against the building, nails out. And I got kids there. And I, I, you know, so when he came back, I was telling him about what happened. And it's like, holy crap. He just didn't even seem surprised. And then he told me about the incident with the cabin. And I said, Chuck, that was no bear, dude. I said, there's not one scratch in that paneling, in that knotty pine paneling. I said, I know every... I said, Chuck, you know I know every square inch of that cabin thoroughly. And there's nothing that's been replaced. He goes, yeah, I know. They didn't wreck the wood. They tore the cabinets off, the shelves off, you know, flipped over the refrigerator, flipped over the wood stove, broke everything in the cabin, tore little playing cards up in little pieces. I mean, there were piles of debris as if something was in there for hours, if not days, destroying stuff with a vengeance. Um, but yet there was a poster, all the paper in the cabin was torn up. I mean, everything was torn except there was a, uh, paper poster in the cabin that was still hanging. He stood by one staple of these animal, uh, pictures, 
the animals of Ontario. And I found that interesting. But um, God, even plastic, everything was broken into little pieces. So could it have been a bear? I mean, you know, I guess if a bear can pull shelves down and cabinets and bend pipes and bathrooms and do all this without leaving teeth marks, um, claw marks, um, why would it why would it go into a, a you know, the thing and bend the sink down flat? Um, why would it flip up? Why would a bear flip a twelve hundred pound fuel tank upside down? That's not something a bear's going to do. They're going to stay as far away from gasoline as you could ever imagine. There was just too many things that didn't add up. And then uh, I had bear expert um, look at the footage. And he said, no, it's not bear damage. This is just not. You know, he gave me many reasons why. And he said, one, bears are all hibernating when that damage occurred. And two, he said, um, the refrigerator is not completely trashed. And if you look at the film in that, you'll see, oh, there's a little lining worn off in the bottom of the refrigerator that a bear did that. No, that, that was that way from water damage. And that happened, I mean, I remember that when that refrigerator was new and I watched it, that finish bubble up over the years and that, you know, because we'd have to clean the refrigerator out. And I remember that, that uh, surface area being removed from the refrigerator, just a finish, a white finish. The bears didn't trash the refrigerator because they can smell what they think is formic acid because the formaldehyde is used in the insulation and um, it breaks down into formic acid. They think it's an ant colony and so they immediately tear that refrigerator apart. Never, that, that wasn't a, that didn't happen. The cabin, the, the doors were fine. The bears, they'd just go right through a window. They'll go right through the door. They'll come in and go, through a different way. I mean, they'll just literally just walk through the door like there's no problem. Break it. No, the doors were fine. One of the screens, I think, was hanging, but it wasn't wasn't clawed up or damaged, I don't believe. Um, Chuck said whatever it was came in through the doorknob and shut it, shut the door behind itself. And he found that interesting, but he still was kind of convinced it was beers, but yet you could just tell when you talk to somebody, he was like, Oh, and he did say to me, I could believe it was a Sasquatch more than a human. And that's kind of a pretty direct statement. He said it would easily, easier for me to believe it was a Sasquatch that did this damage than a, than a human because it looked like human-type damage. You had to have hands to do it. Do you think that owner knows more than what he says because it hurts business that there might be these things around? I do, I do, you know, and I and and Chuck is like a brother to me. I mean, I just love Chuck. He's just, you know, we've gotten to know each other over the years, and I have just so much respect for him. He's one of the greatest pilots ever, ever flown with. Um, can't say enough nice about him, but he did tell me a story which he now denies. Um, he told me a story of seeing a what he thought was a black, huge bear. It didn't make any sense to him, and it seemed like it was walking upright. He remembers circling the plane around, making a couple passes over it, seeing it, and um, then he couldn't find it anymore. But other than that, what he knows, I, I couldn't tell you, but I know he did tell me that story. I'm telling the truth. But I asked, I brought it up to him one day, we were chatting on the phone, and he goes, so I never told you that. And I'm like, yeah, you did. <laughs> 
swear you're like brothers. And I'm like, yeah, you did, Chuck. He's like, no, I didn't. I'm like, yeah, you did. And that was really weird. It felt very awkward. Um, so, but uh, Chuck has recently sold um, Snow Grove. It's a lease, basically. They lease it from the government. Follow strict rules of six people at a time. Only, only so many people, you know, a year can go in there. You know, with very strict rules, and they lease it, the land, they build a cabin. But he's recently sold his his lease to some other outfitter now. I would imagine Chuck is still flying, but I believe it probably got too much work for him. He had a number of outposts all over. I don't know if he sold them all or just sold that one. <laughs> Maybe he just sold that one. I wouldn't blame him. Anyhow, um, but that cabin is just, you know, it's in the heart of the wilderness. Would, you know, if I was a wild animal, would I check it out? Yeah, I think I would because um, there's food smells, things, and noise possibly that would attract an animal. Every once in a while, we've had a small black bear wander up. And like one time a black bear wandered up and I was sitting out there with the black bear. I was just sitting there looking at me. I'm on the porch with it. And it looked at me and it looked at my suitcase and looked at me and grabbed my buddy's suitcase and ran off <laughs> into the forest. And uh, but the black bears are puny up there, man. They're small. So it's interesting with the cabin. It makes me wonder. Uh, prior to that attack, and I probably wouldn't have thought about this at the time when I saw it on TV. But after interviewing so many people, if whoever was staying there before, if they decided to pop off shots or they did something uh, to piss this thing off for it to come in and do it, because you hear of attacks like that. On people's homes, right. and cabins, right? But usually it's mm-hmm. something where they're popping off shots or they're doing something, and these things. Sure, it, in fact, it, it it could have been moose hunters because I think he brings in a certain amount of moose hunters in the fall, a party or two up there, and so I'm wondering if it wasn't moose hunters because it was the last, it was one of the last things they were coming to button up the cabin, I believe, for the year, button it up, winterize it, you know. Or antifreeze or whatever they do down the down the uh, in the pipes. I'm wondering if it wasn't a group of hunters that was up there last, and then they came back um, and the cabin was trashed, and then they put those they put the kneel boards up on the steps to keep bears out. And you know it's safe to do because a bear's not. You know if you know anything about black bears, they're just so kind of methodical. They're not going to step on a nail board. They're going to feel the nail board with their paw, but they're not going to step on it. They're not putting all their weight on it. And so it's a deterrent to keep them away from the doors. Put a stick in the sliding door because I'll slide that that uh, glass door open. And that's happened, I know. And he, he had a bear in there for a second. I guess it slid the, the door open to do any damage. I got scared and ran away. So I'm wondering if it wasn't a hunter or it could have been some very obnoxious people. Or it could have been just resenting the cabin. I mean, I can imagine if you can believe they're almost human, that it could say, hey, I don't like this here. This is my territory. It could have just been a territorial destruction. That's also a possibility. Unfortunately, I don't think we'll ever know. I really don't. And I certainly could, you know, talk to Chuck and find out. And I never thought of that. That was a great question, Wes, because I never thought about who was up there right before the cabin was destroyed. Would have been nice to know. Yeah, because I think that they do have very short tempers, and I think that they can be very territorial, mm-hmm. and they can snap uh, on people. I think if you're in a, 
they they seem to have very short tempers. If you listen to people talk about their encounters, uh, these things can snap on you in a second. I wanted to ask you about the nail board. And for the audience listening who hasn't seen the episode, it's basically a piece of plywood with screws screwed in. And you put it in front of the door so the bears will stay out of the cabin. Uh, But something actually stepped on that screw board. Uh, Would you tell us about that? And then what came of the DNA? Right. Um, Well, okay. So when I discovered the screw board, I could literally, you know, I saw the points. And then when I confronted Chuck on that that, uh, screw board that was leaning against the back of the cabin in a place back by the uh, propane tanks, one, I told him, don't, you know, don't have those screws out so we could fall on that thing. Oh, my God, it'd be pretty deadly. But two of these tell me that, yeah, something stepped on it. And that's when he told me finally the story of the cabin being destroyed. Now my ears are perked up. Now everything's making sense. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, I mean, <laughs> I really felt lucky that they didn't come in and destroy the cabin with us in it. And so... I mean, I'm, my ears are really perked up at this point. He said, yeah, it was, I came back and after the damage, we put the nail boards up. And then when we came back in the spring, there was a lot of blood underneath the nail board and there was blood remnants on the top. And I went, oh, I better go examine this thing. I didn't know something stepped on it. So I went and looked at it and it looked like you could literally see the flesh layer and then the fat layer to the flesh layer from what would be in your foot. I mean, it was pretty, you know, very, um, how would I put it? You, you could see this pattern on there or something stepped on. You could definitely tell it left part of its body parts on that nail board. So I said, Chuck, can we take this nail board and put it in the shed where it's safe? We didn't have any room. Our floor plan was packed with no place. I wasn't going to bring that thing back. I said, I will come back. I will get funding and I will come back with some scientists. We'll collect the nail board. Don't touch it. Just leave it there in the shed. We'll lock it in. And he agreed to do that. No problem. And that's kind of, um, you know, what happened. But certainly, Chuck, and it wasn't our party that put the nail board up. But I can only imagine this thing, if it had come into the door before, no problem. And it maybe it came back to destroy it again after Chuck fixed it up. And literally, we did animation to kind of show how it wouldn't even have seen it come around the corner from the forest, put its foot up on the porch, shifted its weight, and that would have then driven those screws through its foot. Not a pretty thought for anybody to even think about. I I just, I don't know. But it was not done on purpose as a trap um, for, for a Sasquatch. It was done as a bear deterrent. Pretty common practice up there, I right hear. And it works very well. Well, in this case, it didn't work. Um, something stepped on it. And um, so anyhow, we collected the, uh, with Jeff Meldrum, brought a geneticist up there. And um, they very carefully, they brought up all this genetic equipment stuff, you know, uh, the stuff to store it. And they carefully ticked off, which they also agreed, even Jeff did, that that was fat tissue, dried fat dried flesh. And there was also a couple of hairs that were taken that also had naturally worn ants that were wrapped around the, the screws. There were some spider webs taken off, fibers that, you know, were nothing. They were just plant fibers. But there were some hairs that were taken that were, you know, that fit the morphology of a, of a Sasquatch hair and flesh. And of course, we tested it. 
we didn't, you know, we tested nuclear DNA. First test, you know, because the stuff was old and dried, he didn't get anything. He claimed that the, the lab didn't get anything. Well, then Kurt Nelson, who was a geneticist, tested it at the University of Minnesota. And, of course, they have to amplify it, um, use primers and whatnot. And he got it um, uh, so many base pairs, I can't remember how many, you know, 100, 200, 300, I don't remember what it was exactly. He had enough base pairs, but there was a gene or two that was divergent, and it was one of the same genes that was divergent in chimps, in African chimps, which is really interesting. And apparently that is also one of the things I didn't tell you when we talked last time is that is something that does occur in humans, but one in 5,000 or less, that would be the, the uh, smallest amount that that divergent gene would occur in humans. So a very tiny, tiny chance. And so Kurt Nelson knew that he was looking at, you know, possible real nuclear Sasquatch DNA. And I believe we still, to this day, we have some flesh samples that have been preserved that still can be tested when the technology, genetic technology gets better. I don't, would rather not even test it yet and get another, you know, get another hundred or so base pairs. It doesn't really prove anything unless we can get more, you know, more divergent genes and so on. So I would rather them wait. I don't have any of the samples. Um, Dr. Jeff Meldrum, um, may have them. I haven't asked Jeff lately, or maybe they even went to the, uh, the, uh, the genetic studies that were done. I'm not sure. I really don't know. Um, if some of those snow grove samples went to, uh, Belva. Yeah. I don't think that this is going to be proven through DNA, but that is fascinating that the results you got back, uh, and, and not that these things are chimpanzees, <clears throat> but what's interesting is when you listen to a lot of people's encounters, I know everyone says ape and ape and ape. They tend to act more like chimps than they really do apes. You know, they have chimp, chimp, chimps are hands down. Uh, I know everyone sees them on TV and they got the cute little outfits on and all that. Chimp will kill you in the forest. A wild chimp will kill you in the forest. They have very short tempers, uh, but they're very intelligent, very, very intelligent creatures. And so that's fascinating that it came back uh, as a divergent to an African chimp or, you know, portions of the DNA. Uh, if you will, well, there are there are closest relative at this point. That's um, true. Yeah, and who knows if these things? I've known, there's no doubt they're a close relative. But we don't know. You know, we, we just don't know. If you test mitochondrial DNA, and I've done it so many times on hair that looks, um, it's got a tapered worn end, ovidala. They always come back human. You know. And yet the geneticists never check the morphology. <laughs> you know, they don't say, oh, yeah, well, it's human DNA. But God, that's really odd hair. You know, it just doesn't match a human in so many ways. That never happens, and that kind of bothers me. Um, but uh, the nuclear DNA is getting cheaper to do and better. And, you know, the primers keep getting better. And they keep, you know, they're able to revive older and older DNA as we go through and I'm just, you know, I'm really excited about getting a better study done and genetic information. And once again, it'll convince a few scientists top on board. We'll convince the world genetics alone. I, I, I really don't believe it. It just won't. 
Yeah, I tend to agree. And that's why I always say that, you know, someone's going to, we're going to need a body. Whether you want to believe someone's going to hit one with a car or someone's going to shoot one, regardless, uh, at the end of the day, a body is needed. And no one likes to hear that, but that's just the truth. Uh, a body is going to be needed in order to prove this. DNA is not going to prove it. Video is not going to prove it. Uh, we have more than enough audio. We have more than enough footprints. We have more than enough hairs um, to but, show that. But here's what happens. But here's what happens, Wes. Every time you do an interview, you um, bring us one step closer to convincing another mainstream scientist. Everything is a baby step. For instance, nobody has gotten really clear, close-up, 4K footage of a face, you know, you know, where you can see the eyes and all that. If that happens, it will convince everybody, but it will convince a lot more scientists. We'll get a little closer. We'll get you know, good, better genetic material. We'll get us a little closer to them being accepted. Because we have this paradigm that this is just this fake, laughable thing with so many, so many mainstream scientists. Thank God for people like Jeff Miller that have, you know, had huge amounts in Grover Grants, that have had huge amounts of courage to take this on. Um, even Ian Redman, who is, you know, willing to listen, go to a, a Bigfoot conference. He's open-minded. Jane Goodall has, say, you know, made some very open-minded statements. And so, you know, we're, we're kind of getting there, but it's going to take more time I, I even have fears that a body wouldn't do it. It'll just bring us closer because they'll say, there'll just be this huge group of skeptics. They'll come through a great argument and say, that's just a human with some kind of a cell abnormality or some type of disease or some type of a genetic holdback, you know, and that's my fear. It'd have to be two bodies probably to convince everybody, which is, and they'd have to be two bodies from two separate geographic locations taken 10 years apart or collected 10 years apart. So those are my thoughts, whether they're right or not. No, it could but, be right. you know, everybody kind of does their part. And, you know, we can say, well, there's no, there's no good with, you know, certain television shows or there's no good. But every witness that is document, it brings us a tiny bit closer, just a tiny bit. And you've done a huge service, Wes by doing these back-to-back interviews with witnesses with no noise, no editing, no anything, where, where a person like me can listen to these things back-to-back-to-back. Because, you know, I interview witnesses constantly. But by the time you interview a new witness, you've almost forgotten certain little details. But with your show, it's going to allow even scientists to listen to these testimonies over and over and over and over back to back to do marathons and have their light bulb go off because really it's all about people's light bulbs going off. And I think you've done one of the better services that's ever been done in history, Wes, by interviewing people and the way you do it in your just very laid back manner and letting people just talk. Um, I listened to a witness last night that you did. It was the guy in, I believe it was Florida that um, ran into one while he was going to prank his kids, scare his kids in the backyard, if you know what, what I'm talking about. But there's details in his just immense details that he gets into. There's no way that people are making this stuff up, you know. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate the kind words. And I've always felt like my show didn't really make a difference except for helping people. Oh, it does come forward you know it's but i have gotten emails from from scientists from uh, a few universities and one in california one in texas and uh, one in georgia and and i think there is a lot of closet scientists that listen to the show uh, because i've even gotten emails from them and they'll say you know what this behavior reminds me of uh you know primates over in asia and they do this and this and this and i can kind of draw a comparison to what this witness is saying and and there's certain aspects of what this witness said that's very primate-like behavior of known primates <clears throat> that we know, and they'll kind of draw. Um, so that I guess there is small pieces to the puzzle uh, out there that, again, you're not going to solve it w- the whole puzzle, but it's nice to get pieces of the puzzle uh, to try to draw a conclusion on this. Uh, but I appreciate the kind words, Doug, very much. And, and again, it goes yeah. the compliments more for the witnesses that, I have the courage to come forward because they're the ones that really um, make the show. I wanted to ask you about the incident, the the Snellgrove Lake, the night that the cabin was actually, uh, they call it attacked. Um, And I know Jeff Meldrum was there. You were there uh, and you guys were all out there. If you would, can you kind of walk the audience for those who haven't seen it into what happened and, and what, why you think what set these things off that night? Okay, we, we had gone up there and we had brought, um, you know, a marginal amount of equipment. My main goal was to get the DNA collected, see if we could have some interactions, um, set up some lights, normal, everyday surveillance equipment, <clears throat> nothing too special. We, didn't, we just had normal, you know, like uh, game camera traps put on trees around the cabin. And they wanted to do an, you know, Jeff really wanted to do an environmental study as did Esteban Sarmiento, um, but Esteban couldn't go. So it was just Jeff, it was Kurt Nelson, it was myself, my son Blaine, and Vladimir. And so we went up there, and it, we had bad weather. Kurt wanted one of Kurt's goals was to go camp on that hidden lake where we had heard that first one knock. And so he wanted to be dropped off. That was one of his goals. And so we did that. We dropped Kurt off, and he camped alone way far away um, in a tent by himself. <clears throat> but it was drizzly. It was raining. And, you know, it's raining on a tent. You can't hear anything. It's like kind of all wildlife just ceases to move. Well, we had that kind of weather, just drizzly, drizzly weather. And I was really let down. Nothing had happened. Nothing had happened. I think three days went by. Nothing happened. Finally, the rain quit. <clears throat> it was just, I could hear the drip, drip, and it was finally just coming to an end, slowing down. I go outside. I'm walking around on the porch. Is it still drizzling a little bit? I don't want to get all damp. And just bummed. And all of a sudden, a rock <clears throat> comes out of the forest and hits the shed ricochets off the shed and rolls by my feet. And I'm like, oh my God, they're here. You know, this is what I'm thinking is what I'm yelling. I literally yelled it, they're here, you know. And I ran, so I was all excited. I couldn't contain myself. And I kill everybody. And I said, stop reading, come on out. I said, you know, I just had a rock thrown at the shed. They come out and a little bit, you know, we're just listening at this point talking and listening, enjoying the stars. And Blaine had to go to the bathroom. 
And, of course, at this point, because of the rock thrown, he's scared to go to the outhouse. He's going to pee off the porch. We had this little spot. We kind of peed at this one end of the porch in the middle of the night. You know, it's a normal human thing to be leery of walking to an outhouse through the, through the forest, the edge of the forest in the middle of the night. So, anyhow, he's peeing. And as he's peeing, me and Kurt are just, we're talking, we're standing near Blaine. And a rock comes and darn near takes his head off. I mean, it hit within an inch of his head, right above him, just bang. And literally, I don't think I've, I saw Kurt, I've seen this happen before when people get mad. <clears throat> Kurt actually got angry. I mean, he felt like, thinking, oh my God, and he takes a rock and he throws it back into the woods. We're all standing outside and here comes that rock. I literally could see it in the light coming over because I was looking in that direction and it comes sailing over the top of the camera cabin and hits this tin roof and of course it makes a lot of noise. Boom and boom 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 boom. And that was enough for everybody now to bolt into the cabin, not to get because nobody wants to get smacked in the head. And you're starting envisioning, you know, a shower of these rocks coming over. And so we go in the cabin like a bunch of cowards. And I'm filming I'm the camera guy because it's just, you know, we, we can only bring so many people up there. So I'm filming everything. And I film, you know, Kurt, a little statement from Kurt, a little statement from Jeff. They're whispering. And we do that. We kind of get, collect our, whatever, our thoughts and our emotions. And we all go back outside again. We feel kind of comforted um, just from that little 10 minute wait. And we all go back out. Kurt, very brave guy. He goes out, he grabs a thermal camera, turn it on for him, and he's scouring the back of the cabin. He's in the woods now, scouring, looking for, you know, to see anything. I'm filming with a night vision camera around the front, and nothing happened. Literally nothing happened. That whole night, we tried wood knocks. We tried everything. Nothing. No more rocks, no more wood knocks, nothing. No screaming. I mean, just nothing. So we're like, well, whatever, we'll go to bed. And so we go to bed probably two in the morning and uh, Blaine is on edge. He's the youngest there. He is um, fine, but he's on edge. And every time I try to fall asleep, I hear, Dad, Dad, did you hear that? You know, he's just waking me up constantly. Finally, he starts scaring me. He goes, Dad, what if a rock comes through the window? You know, we'll get glass in our eyes and we'll get hit in the head and, we'll, you know, whatever. I said, okay, go to, you know, whatever. So I finally, we build a little barricade of, uh, of duffel bags. So at least I'm protected. Blaine's probably not protected. I said, you're protected by a wall, Blaine, because he's below, his head is below the window and mine is right in line with the window. And so he's giving me crap about that. Still bothering me, keeping me up. And finally, it's quiet. We go to sleep. I go to sleep. And I'm brutally awakened, as is everybody in the cabin, cabin, by what sounds like, I thought immediately, it was a camera trap thrown, one of our heavy uh, game trail cameras that was thrown at the side of the cabin. It hit literally right by my head when my head was leaning against the upper bunk wall, because it's that wall that aims, you know, to the forest. And it hit right there. I mean, literally the whole cabin shook. Everybody's up now. Kurt, Jeff, everybody's up. And uh, we're thinking, oh, my God, this is, you know, they're definitely here. 
they want her attention. Now, finally, it's funny that nothing happens until you fall asleep. Until you truly are sleepy. Then it's like they want to wake you up. To this day, millions of theories about that. Why do they want to wake you up? You know, if they're afraid of you, why do they want you up? And so the next morning, we find a cord, a piece of uh, cordwood that was bounced off the cabin. It was laying in the middle of the, uh, the walkway to the uh, outhouse. Just some wood planks just laying there. And clearly it was that, that chunk of firewood that was thrown at the cabin. And so that kind of thing wasn't as violent as what, ex- what I experienced. But then again, I don't think I remember going to the, the sink or anybody didn't flick the light on. I didn't, didn't even want to do that. Um, but anyhow, after that log hit, now my son is literally going into shock. He literally thought that we were going to be killed at any second. And he was shaking uncontrollably. He couldn't breathe, and he was acting irrational. He was trying to crawl under the uh, under under his ground bunk, which was just full of millions of dead spiders and spider webs. I mean, it was nasty under there. He's trying to crawl under there. And he's just, he doesn't even know what he's doing because he's so scared. This is the first time in his life he's actually had that much fear. And I got him calmed down, but I was literally worried about his health at that point, that he was he couldn't breathe. And um, got him calmed down. And finally the sun comes up, went back. Okay, so that night uh, was real interesting. We don't know what the next night is going to bring, but nothing else happened. That was it. Do you think what set them off was your son peeing off the side of the, by the cabin, peeing in the woods? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, absolutely, because, you know, on other expeditions, including it happened to me at the uh, uh, Pinchot National Forest, I had a rock just about take my head off when I was urinating. And we were out, me and uh, a guy by the name of Mario and Vladimir were out um, uh, on an expedition. Um, and we were walking through the forest without any flashlights. We didn't even bring flashlights. We just went on a long walk, you know, one, two in the morning. And we had a rock that just about took my head off. And I was urinating. There's other cases where we've had rocks thrown at us, where we're urinating. So it's definitely got to be a territorial situation. And and I had an experience when I came back up there after that trip, which is still a little bit more to that trip, but I came back up. And there was one of these things that urinated where we urinate. It came and urinated through the picnic table across the uh, porch and then grabbed uh, my buddy's rod case that was, we keep them outside, grabbed it from the ground and threw it at the cabin. So obviously it's an, either an irritation to them, but it came in and remarked the territory. And so that I found very interesting. But anyhow, to get back to the story, when we were up with um, Jeff and everything, um, nothing happened. We went back, you know, and did the DNA and everything. And of course, I wanted to go back up again, this time with Jeff again, and bring some other people. I wanted to bring um, a guy with, you know, biopsy darts um, and so on. And, And we had all sorts of little tricks up our sleeve. One of them, because we know they're always attacking when... You know, when you're sleeping, I've had that experience too many times to ignore it. I thought, well, what if we could build a blind, you know, in the cabin um, out of black canvas, and then we could put monitors 
video monitors under the eaves, you know, put them all in them, really hide them. And then um, monitor, you know, have somebody on shift all night long monitoring the cabin. Maybe we can get some footage. It would have been a huge, you know, big deal because I could have shared it on History Channel in prime time. So it would have been a it would have, would have been would have been a very big deal. And so I was really trying to think out of the box. And I thought it was a great idea. <clears throat> Only one dumb thing I did. We spent all this money bringing all this equipment up. Tons of batteries to run all this surveillance equipment, big heavy lead acid batteries. But there was one dumb, dumb, dumb thing I did. I never checked before we flew everything up and before we all went up there if the blueberries were ripe. And they weren't. And they were green. Um, and we had no action. So here I've got all these great, you know, Esteban Sarmiento's up there, primatologist, um, you know, Jeff, um, got Dr. Greg Bamanek up there. Um, he's the gentleman that actually concocted the, uh, the sexual pheromone ships for me years ago and that people use in research. So he's up there and he's a medical doctor. And, um, you know, he's just really an amazing guy. And we brought uh, gorilla urine up um, during the menstrual cycle. We had all sorts of things, but nothing happened. One day the full plane pilot flies in and tells us that there was a sighting about 100 miles um, south of where we were. And, of course, happened to a couple of Native women who were picking blueberries. And, of course, the guys went down there and did, they were going to salvage that trip by going in and investigating that area, which, you know, panned out, obviously, in, in the form of witnesses and interviews, but did not pan out in the form of any, you know, great evidence. And so that whole thing was a bust. Um, but uh, it, it did kind of point out a pattern of maybe these things follow the ripening blueberries. And that's something for everybody to keep in mind. You know, what berries have now ripened? You're having activity and you never had activity before or you know, around your home or your cabin. You know, you didn't have any activity before, but now you're having it. Well, maybe there's a crop of berries that's ripe. Because there's no doubt they, they follow this wave. You know, and I believe they're omnivorous, but I believe they follow the wave of certain foods north in certain geographic areas. Like in Minnesota, I believe they, you know, they probably go south in the winter down the Mississippi or St. Croix River and they work their way north as the food sources changes, as there's more plant material to eat. Maybe they eat less meat and then they kind of keep working their way north. Or the ones in Ontario just go north of the Blueberry Festival, you know, and they just keep, you know, following that wave. And then when that runs out, they turn around and head back south. So, but it, it lended uh, some theory to that and some credence. Yeah, it makes sense that they would follow the food. I mean, that makes complete sense to me. I think that, you know, every animal on the planet does that. We would do that if we were in the wild. We would follow the food and where the food's at. So that that makes complete sense to me. And, you know, the, the whole cabin thing, uh, I can understand why, leaving the food out and the entrails and all the, that other stuff, but I think that's really attracting them to that cabin. Like you said, it's an easy food source. And I remember seeing that now that you mentioned that, those two Native American women that were picking berries and they saw a Sasquatch while they were picking berries and, uh, you know, not being 100 miles in, in the grand scheme of things isn't that far away. 
uh, but it would make sense that they would follow the food. Do you think that the Sasquatch <clears throat> is being covered up by the government? Um, yeah, probably not in an organized way. I think in a regional way. You know, I've got enough personal experiences in certain areas and enough stories to kind of realize that there seems to be kind of a local, you know, like um, you'll have a, a wildlife area, you know, where there's numerous game wardens and, and they'll have experiences. One, there's an automatic cover-up because they probably don't want to tell their fellow workers. Um, they don't want to tell anybody. And then if they're all the people are in on it or have experience, they don't want the public to know. They don't want to scare anybody, or they don't want to look silly because they believe in it. I've seen too many cases where there's been a really good sighting, and I've even seen this in, in, in your state, Wes, where there'll be a really good sighting or a series of sightings, and they'll walk off and gate off an area, and then may never open it again because you know there were too many um, Sasquatch sightings in that area, and that becomes kind of odd to me. It's like, oh, that's an awful odd coincidence. I've seen it up here in Minnesota. There's a sighting, and then suddenly this whole area is off limits. So that's kind of a cover-up. And then I think on a federal level, level, I think there is some, but I don't know if it's like coming from the exact top. I think it comes from from uh, these levels of bureaucracy. In other words, BLM, they're um, the people that are actually out in the field their boss may know and, and, and tell them and even warn them about these things. But I think it ends with their boss. Who their boss is communicating with, I don't know. But I had an instance in Washington where we were right on the edge of uh, BLM land, um, and we kept having this parade of SUVs coming in and taking us all aside and questioning us. It got really scary. You know, we were doing research. We were measuring things and doing things, but we were investigating Bigfoot, you know, and I was totally honest with them what we were doing. And they'd finally they'd leave. Cal dang it, they'd come back the next day again, start questioning us. It started getting kind of scary to me. You know, I was like, am I going to come and arrest me? Um, and then finally, here again, it's like two, three days later, they come again. And the guy, one of the guys wants to talk to me alone again. And he takes me real far away. And he's talking to me and he goes, you know, because what I was doing, Wes, is I was asking them. I was just turning it around on them, going, well, have you had Bigfoot sightings? So tell me about your, yeah, you must have. You guys are out here every day. You're out here. You're in the field. You must have. I just kept pounding them. And they kept, you know, everybody I talked to always goes, no, 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 no. Well, finally, this guy goes, Okay, I lied there. He came to tell me that he lied to me. That he had covered up the fact that they did have experiences. Did, I believe, have sightings. I can't remember that. So I don't quote, you know, I don't want to be filled with that one. But definitely had collected footprints. And some of these footprints, some of them were in cow pies. You know, Bill Lim is kind of famous for renting out forest lands to, you know, people who are raising cattle. Um, feed cattle, and they'll go and they'll graze and be on lands. They, of course, pooped in the woods, and they had, a, in the winter, when they were doing some kind of tree survey, they kept finding footprints that were in the cow pies. 
big human footprints. And he goes, God, I've got one of those. We've got one or two of those if you want to come look at them. So now he's trying to get information from me, which I found interesting. But just the fact that they would come out there that many times, and we, that was a treacherous trip out where we were. It was not an easy place to get to. But for them to come out there over and over and over, it seemed kind of odd to me. Well, I've had that kind of thing happen, not quite as big, but in other areas. And um, it seems to, once again, think you know, it's kind of a local cover-up, regional, I guess, for their own reasons. I've heard about studies where the feds have, have ordered studies in national parks with biologists. I've been told this by biologists that they were actually studied to, to track these things. I've heard of federal parasite studies um, and do, a huge dung that they find or feces next to, you know, where they're doing, um, you know, radio coloring of elk and other animals and they keep finding them dead with their livers missing and entrails gone, but yet there's no teeth marks. Doesn't, doesn't seem like a normal predator. You know, find these big, huge um, uh, feces that are just massively, look like human feces, but they're massive. They'll send them in and do parasite studies. But guess what? Zero parasites. See, all, all, all mammals that live in the woods, whether it's cougars, bears, or whatever, they all have very unique parasites within those feces because of what they eat and so on. And they have specialized, they're specialized parasites that live in those animals. Well, these samples never had any parasites. And I find that really interesting, as if whatever these things are have somehow found some plant or something to kill the parasites. And so not only are they not finding any <clears throat> parasites, it's impossible for that to happen. And these biologists know that. There's no way it can happen. Living in the wild, you're going to have parasites. I used to get parasites going up to snow. I'd get uh, giardia, you know, beaver fever you know, which live in your gut's a terrible thing, but I would get it. I got it two, three times going up there, drinking out of the lake. You know, and I kept telling Chuck, I'm like, God, I get sick. Oh, you didn't get your already. I'm like, uh, yeah, I guess I had the worst case of the doctors I've ever seen. So, I mean, me being up there for a week, I get parasites, uh, let alone living in there in the wild. But, so I've, I've heard this, and uh, that's really interesting to me. Why do you think that they're covering it up? What do you think the motive, because when I look at it, I think, well, what would be the motivation for them to cover it up? And I can think of a couple, but they don't really add up. I understand lumber. I understand <clears throat> money. I understand this and that. But let's say there was chimpanzees, for example, in the United States, uh, and they were in our right. forest. I, I don't believe for one instance the lumber industry has that much pull uh, to – you know, get you know enough money for the government to cover this up, and so what do you think the motivation is with with covering the, this? Well, I'll give you a couple of theories. Um, one is laziness. Here, here are my words, Wes: plain old everyday bureaucratic laziness. Why do they deny they have wolves in certain areas? You know, for instance, I know a place there's. There's well, Iceland just came back. They were literally tracked out of there by timber wolves. You know, these were not little coyotes. These were, you know, huge, tall, you know, four foot at the shoulder timber wolves. 
of course, Dr. Game, uh, game warden there, a wildlife officer. Yeah, no, we don't have any wolves in here. God, they know there's wolves in there. Okay, they're there every day. They're lazy. They don't want to do more work. They got their little routine. They can sit, you know, and I hate to say this about people, but it's kind of a natural thing with some, some government jobs. I'm not saying all wildlife people are lazy. I'm just saying there's a, there seems to be that effect on bureaucratic organizations, okay? And they don't want to deal with it. They just don't want to deal with wolves. They don't want to deal with Sasquatches. They don't want to deal with it. And so that's, that's definitely one, one factor, okay? Other factors can be danger. The other factor is it's just too weird. They don't exist, but yet, you know, they've had these sightings and they're working these forests. They know that they exist because they've had a sighting. And so it's just kind of like the boss says, lock it up. We don't want any incidents here. We don't want nuts in our woods. We don't want, we don't want to deal with it. Once again, it's kind of like a laziness. They just don't want to deal with it. And there could be forestry reasons because there's no doubt there'd be pressure to set aside land, more old growth forests. Because you know, like, I think they seem to cut down everything. And, and it's probably been the, the cutting of a lot of our old growth forests that probably led to some of the wildlife explosions that we have. You know, I mean, that's just a uh, fact. Wildfires, forest cutting, replanting, you know, new forests. It gives you more variety in a forest. And it's probably led to the explosion of these things, including deer, wild turkeys, cougars, many other mammals that were very close to being extinct. Um, and so there probably would be some pretty fast tracks that would be uh, would be disrupted, let's put it that way. And I just don't think a lot of people don't want to deal with change. They just don't want to deal with it. You know, it, 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 it could be the forest industry and some conspiracy, but... You know, I really don't know how much lobbying the forest industry does. I don't know, you know, how much covering up they do. I haven't put a ton of thoughts. I haven't really had any personal. I try to just go on personal first-hand information. You know, biologists I've talked to in the federal government or, you know, people like that. So um, that's kind of my theory. It's just they don't want to deal with it. Yeah, and you could be right. You know, going back to when you saw the uh, or you had the uh, SUVs coming down when you're doing an expedition. You know, if it's such a big joke and it's we're all chasing unicorns here, then why bother stopping and talk to you guys? Or if, why bother if they talk to you one time and oh, you guys are chasing Bigfoot while they all get a good life and they can get back in their SUVs and leave? Why come back the next day? Why pull? Well, why interrogate? Yeah, but they interrogated all of us separately. Yeah. I mean, that gets kind of, that really does get scary because, you know, you know, they have total power. So you can just disappear. They take you and say, you're under arrest. So you're just gone. I mean, there's not much anybody can do at that point. They can throw any kind of charges they want at you. And you know, you can, you know, federal lands, national parks, there's a, just a jillion laws and regulations and they can get you for whatever. But to be interrogated three times was getting really annoying and really spooky. And why were they so concerned? Well, then maybe the truth came out then, see, when they came forward and said, you know, we have seen things. <laughs> in other words, they're basically saying we believe in them. 
we want. I think they wanted information. So that's kind of interesting too. Um, you know, so once again, it can be a whole host of things. Were they trying to arrest us? We're trying to get inside information. I don't know. I really don't know. Yeah, and it'd be nice if they would just come forward and, and say what they know. But I think it goes deeper than that. But you might be right. It might be more of a regional. Uh, it sure seems they, they use the same tactic from one, one region to the next. It's not the first time I've heard of guys rolling in on SUVs and pulling everyone aside and, and questioning them on what what are you doing? Oh, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> they were bumper to bumper. They literally roll in and they're bumper to bumper. And it's like, what is going on? You know? And it's just extremely intimidating. Do you think a Sasquatch is intimidating? There's nothing worse than three black, you know, SUVs rolling up into your camp, especially if you can see them coming from a mile away. You know, it's like, oh, this is not going to be good. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And out here in Washington State, I would imagine it's the same in every state. Uh, those guys have more authority than uh, cops, and most people don't oh, realize big that. Time. Yeah, most of the time. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you're dealing with, you know, they can get you on anything, but you don't know why they're, you don't really know what their motive is. What are they after? Are they after a film permit? Are they after a picnic permit? Are they after a camping permit? Are they after, you know, inside information as to trying to deter you from, you know, trying to make you move and not be looking for Bigfoot in their area, which is kind of the feeling I got. I, you know, I just, I really don't know. It's a tough thing to put your finger on it. But I find it um, very common for wildlife officials to deny that they have, for instance, cougars. We have cougars around here. I have seen now two cougars near my home, broad daylight, with witnesses. Do you think they, they would deny, you know, um, admit there's cougars living around here? No, they don't want to deal with it. If anything, you know, it's a pet that got loose. And there, there's cougars now on the east side of the Mississippi and growing in huge numbers, but they will not admit it. So first, uncover the cougar problem, and then you'll figure out the Sasquatch problem. Why won't they admit there's cougars? Then you'll know why they won't admit there's Sasquatches. It's the same thing. You know, they don't want to deal with it. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, Doug, yeah. I, I really appreciate coming on. I enjoy talking with you and all your experiences. I kind of have you back on the show uh, to talk, I know there's so much more to talk about, but oh yeah, I really Never appreciate end. you taking the time to uh, to come on the show. It was a real treat for me, and I know the audience will really enjoy hearing you on the show. So thank you again. Well, thank you, Wes, and it was uh, very enjoyable to me. Yeah, sure, we can always uh, come back on anytime. There's a ton of subjects to talk about. Absolutely. Thanks again, Doug. And that's it for tonight, everyone. Remember, if you've had an encounter, shoot me an email. My email address is wes at sasquatchchronicles.com. Until next time, everyone. 